This message comes from NPR sponsor, Progressive, and it's Name Your Price Tool. Say how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show coverage options within your budget. Visit Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. My name is Anthony. I'm a banking executive in the Atlanta, Georgia area. I can tell you that my career is a direct result of affirmative action. My service in the United States Army, my bachelor's degree, my MBA did far less for me than when someone in the Georgia government called someone at a bank and effectively told them to hire me because I was black. I know this because I was sitting in the room. In a landmark decision this summer, the U.S. Supreme Court overturned race-based admissions in higher education. That decision opened up a new field of legal challenges against corporations' policies and programs to make their companies more diverse. Why are some people targeting diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts? How will companies pivot to achieve their diversity goals? Today, we dive into the current landscape of diversity, equity, and inclusion programs, or DEI. Later on in the show, we discuss the legal challenges against venture capital funds, federal contracting programs, and other initiatives that provide financial investments and resources for entrepreneurs from marginalized backgrounds. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. We've got a lot to get into. Stay with us. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Progressive. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit their website to get a quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, and their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. Then just choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Let's get into the conversation. Joining us now from New York City is Lauren Weber. She's a workplace reporter for the Wall Street Journal. Also with us from Evanston, Illinois, is Alvin Tillery. He's the director of the Center for the Study of Diversity and Democracy at Northwestern University. He's also CEO of the 2040 Strategy Group. That's a consulting firm that helps organizations achieve their diversity goals. Thanks to you both for joining us. So, Alvin, when we look at the current landscape of DEI programs in the workplace and business, What do they usually look like? Well, they certainly don't look uh, like university admissions programs where you were until recently when the Supreme Court's conservative majority overturned 45 years of precedent where you were allowed to explicitly consider the race of the applicant uh, in discussions about the end result. Um, under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, uh, that kind of formulaic approach uh, to race and hiring uh, was never permissible. Um, And so, you know, pipeline work, uh, work to get sort of underrepresented groups uh, into the organization through internships or scholarships, um, and then setting goals and timetables about making your organization look statistically like the population of America. That's what affirmative action uh, and corporate DEI has looked like for about the last 30 years or so, right? 
Well, one of the leading activists targeting diversity measures is Edward Bloom. He was behind the Supreme Court case that overturned race-based admissions in higher education. Lauren, what lawsuits are Bloom and other legal groups pursuing to target companies' programs? For the most part, these uh, groups tend to be uh, legal activist groups are going after major companies. Let's see, Starbucks, Target, Comcast, those are some of the early firms that have been uh, targeted here by these lawsuits with varying outcomes. Talk about some of the outcomes we've seen so far. Sure. Well, in some of these challenges have took place before the affirmative action decision came down. So some of this activity has been bubbling up for a while. I do think the affirmative action decision emboldened groups and others to uh, to, to bring these challenges forth. But in the Comcast case, uh, that was a supplier diversity program or a small business diversity program where Comcast was giving grants to uh, small businesses impacted by the pandemic. um, And they were setting them aside for uh, small businesses owned by people of color largely. So in that case, um, the program was challenged by an organization in Wisconsin, and Comcast did settle that case and changed the criteria for its grant program. The Starbucks case, uh, that was brought by America First Legal Foundation, and that is the group uh, that was started by Stephen Miller, who was one of Donald Trump's advisors. Um, they were suing on behalf of shareholders and basically saying that diversity per the diversity programs that Starbucks had were uh, should be declared. You know, they they were against shareholder interests. Basically, I think their argument was that they were a waste of money, essentially, and or or no exposed the the company to some legal risk. And the judge threw out that case and basically said, if you don't want to support an organization like Starbucks, there are plenty of other companies that you can be investing in. Lauren, what are some of the questions coming up about standing? Who has standing to bring some of these cases? Well, that's where I think the affirmative action case does have some impact here, because um, that was a case where Edward Blum's group uh, found, sued as that organization, not as an individual that had been harmed by affirmative action uh, in university settings. So that has changed, I think, the, the the bar to bring these cases and made it so that an, an organization, a legal organization, can bring these claims and will probably have an easier time Basically being able to say, well, you know, as an organization, we weren't directly harmed, but these programs are harmful. So I think the door has opened to uh, in terms of legal standing. Alvin, when it comes to considering race in hiring, what do you see from companies right now? How are they trying to build a diverse workforce? Well, I mean, I I think that this uh, Students for Fair Admissions case fee Harvard uh, has created you know, lots of legal risk uh, for companies. And it's not just from uh, the conservative side of the aisle. Frankly, uh, what the court's done in this case is made it a lot easier in some ways uh, for uh, groups of BIPOC workers, black, indigenous, people of color uh, to uh, sort of correct, which has been the largest problem in corporate America, which is the over-representation of white men in every rank of leadership, 
which you cannot explain uh, by normal statistics, right? So the point is that we have affirmative action programs. We have the Civil Rights Act and Title VII of the Civil Rights Act because uh, white men were discriminating against women and people of color uh, in the hiring process. And we've talked euphemistically about these programs as diversity, equity, and inclusion because it made the groups that were there and in power uncomfortable to talk much more explicitly about Title VII compliance. But when I look at what's happened with this court case, uh, I see, you know, people of color, women, other marginalized groups who've been locked out of management for, you know, you know, decades now being able to simply say, you know, well, how did we get to this outcome, right? Uh, what are you doing uh, to ensure that you're actually being equitable in the hiring, retention, and promotion processes? What I found as a consultant is <laughs> that a lot of companies are not prepared uh, to answer these questions, uh, and they are just simply responding to the legal threat from groups like Stephen Miller's group and Ed Bloom's group. And for me, that's just the tip of the iceberg. I think if you're a company responding to these cases by saying you're going to shut down your DEI programs, that's a huge mistake um, because, one, more lawsuits will be coming from people of color uh, shortly. Uh, And two, the population is both contracting and diversifying. So how are you going to manage this new talent, which is mostly going to be uh, people of color after 2040, uh, if you're not preparing your workplace and your organization to change? And so what I'm trying to tell my clients to do is to put programs in place so that you can maintain equity, which you can't really ban. You can't ban equity. (laughs) The Civil Rights Act is still the law of the land. Uh, It's preposterous to think that you can ban an equity program. The law requires equity. And so we're trying to get people to think creatively about how to respond to these threat letters uh, without just kind of, you know, going overboard in the other direction, because that's going to create terrible risks for them. Lauren, in your reporting, what are you finding about the types of DEI programs and, and policies that at this point seem safe from legal or even social backlash? Well, first of all, I totally agree with Alvin that I think think there's a very narrow pathway for companies to walk, you know, because there is legal risk on both sides. Um, Diversity, equity, and inclusion, three words, they mean slightly different things. And, um, you know, inclusion is about a sense of belonging. So companies often have programs like having employee resource groups. So we have a group for, you know, our female employees, for our LGBTQ employees, for black employees, um, people with disabilities. So those tend to be sort of for networking, for social reasons, for, um, you know, often having maybe events with senior leadership. I think those are are quite safe. Um And another program that Alvin talked about, too, which is these pipeline programs. So there is nothing wrong with the company saying we're going to source uh, from more diverse places. So we're going to do some uh, recruiting at uh, historically black colleges and universities. Or we're going to try to go to, um, you know, women's engineering group, trade groups and bring in people. So having a very diverse pipeline so that you have as big a pool as possible to recruit from. Coming up, what does it take to start a business as a Black female entrepreneur? For one stylist and chef from Cincinnati, it took a lot of initiative and a little help from a business accelerator geared toward people of color. We'll be back with more in just a moment. Stay with us. 
Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from Amgen, a biotechnology pioneer leading the fight against the world's toughest diseases such as cancer, heart disease, asthma, and osteoporosis. In a new era of human health, Amgen continues to accelerate the pace of change, operating sustainably and drawing upon deep knowledge of science to push beyond what's known today. With each decade, they reliably deliver powerful new therapies to patients. Learn more at Amgen.com. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. Let's get back to our conversation by adding another voice. Crystal Render is a black entrepreneur who started her small business 20 years ago. When she was ready to expand, she reached out to a local business accelerator meant to help people of color. Crystal owns Magnificent Morsels Catering and a hair salon called Crystal Marie's Divine Designs. And she joins us now from Cincinnati, Ohio. Crystal, welcome to the program. Hi, Janice. So thank you for having me. Well, what made you want to start your own businesses? You know, I I got to a point in my life where just getting by was not enough. And I quickly decided for my own self that I had to make a change. So for me, that meant opening my own business and just kind of stepping out on faith. So that's how my salon was born. So it's literally been over to about 20 years now that I have been an entrepreneur. And along that journey, I also realized that my skills, my gifts and my talents would also afford me to open a second business, which is how I launched and reopened Magnificent Morsels five years ago. How difficult was it for you to start and grow businesses on your own? What information did you have to kind of figure out along the way? So that's a very interesting story. Um, When I did my salon, I had zero information, zero help. And I looked adamantly because the fear of moving from a guaranteed paycheck to not knowing if you were going to have one was just immense. So when I say I stepped out on faith, I mean that literally I I had to have a come to Jesus moment with myself and my family. And I had to sit down and just say, hey, I feel like this is just one of those things we have to take a chance at. Worst case scenario, we can always go back to what we know. So when I started my salon, I had no no help, no resources. And you really couldn't find them, Hmm. which was puzzling to me. Um, Fast forward to roughly 15 years later, when I decided to open, rebrand and relaunch my catering company. I was now in a position that we have accelerators and we have all of these great programs that are now available and even more so the ones that focus on people of color to really help us position ourselves in a space to scale our businesses. And it was just a game changer for me. You came across the business accelerator Mortar, and it supports mostly women and historically marginalized business owners in the Cincinnati area. You graduated from their Entrepreneurship Academy in 2018. What type of support did Mortar provide? When I tell you, hands down, I've never come across an accelerator that had done what Mortar had done for me. I I can't say enough praises for them. Um, Mortar put not only just me, but people of color, women especially, in a position to have the support they need in order to scale their business. Um, And what that looked like for a person like me, who was a single mom at this time, um, 
it gave me resources. First of all, all of the things that I needed to grow and scale my business. And then the support background of just saying, hey, how can we help? How, what do you need? How can we be of service to you? I had never had that before. And when you talk about the types of support they provided, walk us through what some of that looked like, both the practical support and the financial support. So the most significant and the most heartfelt for me was um, right at 2020, when we were going into the pandemic, I had just scaled my business. We were making all of the connections. We finally got profit. Money's coming in. We're building a name and life is good. And immediately within one day, every everything we had lined up for the rest of the month canceled, like $12,000 worth of business. And for a small business, that was major for me. It canceled in one day. Mm-hmm. And with the notification that we were, everything was shutting down. So of course you panic because now I don't know how I'm paying my bills. I don't know how I'm taking care of things. And I'll never forget one of the representatives from Mortar called me and just said, hey, are you okay? And I'm like, yeah, I'm good. They're like, no, like, are you okay? How are you paying your bills? How are you going to feed your family? What are you going to look like in two weeks? What are you going to look like in 30 days? What are you going to look like in 90 days? And how can we help? No one had ever done that. And I don't still to this day don't know a program that actually put cash money into their graduates hands to help them. And especially in such a fast turnaround, just to make sure we didn't fail, falter or give up. That to me was was outstanding. When you think about what your business would look like today, had you not found mortar what do you think things would be like for you? I think I would still be scratching and crawling at the surface. I think I would still be struggling off my own dime. And I definitely would not have scaled my business to the place we are now. Um, We have currently secured a sponsorship with an NFL team. Um, We are now sponsored by the Cincinnati Bengals and Paycor as an Earn Your Stripes winner. We went in, pitched our business, and earned an awesome marketing sco- uh, sponsorship where our logo is now on the Paycor Stadium, on their website, you name it, we're there, we are being seen, we are easily found. If I hadn't had a program like Mortar to really teach me the art of the pitch or what needs to be in the pitch, I don't know that I would have ever had the confidence to go in there and even try to win a sponsorship of that magnitude much less take on the types of corporate accounts that we now carry. And, and to people who say these programs aren't fair, that this sort of resource should be available to everyone, regardless of race, gender, um, identity, what do you say to them? I can only speak for me. I've graduated from multiple courses just because I chose to educate myself in that manner. And even especially going back to mortar and what they mean, and that is their target. They are looking for women and people that are are not always represented fairly. But at the same time, they also do not turn away any entrepreneur that comes in. That is their focus. That is their drive. That is their purpose. But they have always been fair about also opening that door for whomever is an entrepreneur, because at the end of the day, an entrepreneur is exactly that. But there is something very special to be said when you focus on the ones who are severely underrepresented, because 
we need different resources that are just not available to us that other people don't realize. We can't just walk in a bank and get a loan. We can't just um, go up into a corporate office and say, hey, I would like to, you know, start an account with you. We don't have that strong foot support behind us solo. So having these types of accelerators and courses and cohorts to support us through this to have their name backing us saying we've done the work and I am worthy of this account or I am worthy of this whatever it means the world to that small business that's Crystal Render. She's the owner of the hair salon Crystal Marie's Divine Designs and Magnificent Morsels Catering. Crystal, thanks for speaking with us. I greatly appreciate you having me. We just heard Crystal's story of building her businesses as a Black woman. Black women were the fastest growing group of entrepreneurs from 2014 to 2019, according to J.P. Morgan. However, Black women still owned only 1% of total businesses in the U.S. as of 2020. That's according to the Brookings Institute. Now, the Atlanta-based Fearless Fund wants to change that. They invest in women of color-led businesses, and now they're being sued over it. Here's Fearless Fund's Arian Simone speaking to CBS last month. Even beyond racism and sexism, there is something called proximity. The investors in the venture capital field, 92% of them are white male. I'm a strong believer that if we can diversify the investors, we can diversify the investments. Black women received just 0.35% of global venture capital funding in 2020. That's according to Crunchbase. That's a company that collects and sells data of private companies. Hey, Alvin, we heard Crystal's story beyond funding. What are some of the other barriers Black entrepreneurs face? Well, I mean, Crystal's story is is wonderful, and I'm so glad that she had the opportunity to participate in that accelerator program. I, I think part of the, the, the dilemma that we have as a society is that we don't really often provide the why of, you know, these programs. Why do we need a program like this, right? And, and the reason for that is that in the first decades of the 20th century, uh, African-Americans and other people of color uh, did not have the same access to capital uh, as white entrepreneurs have had, nor uh, did they have the same uh, subsidies from the federal government uh, to access uh, capital. And so the reason that a lot of these programs exist in the first place is that they're corrective efforts uh, to put women and people of color on the same footing uh, that historically advantaged groups have had. Uh, and so we've got to sort of spotlight the why uh, and continue to, uh, just like the Fearless Fund is urging us to do, to try to correct the imbalances that exist in the system. That's the only way we get to equity. And so when we look at the legal challenges facing some of these programs, like the Fearless Fund, what is the argument the, um, these, these legal organizations are making about why something like the Fearless Fund, these are people who are deciding to invest money in certain businesses, why that's, that shouldn't be possible? Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, I think because they are committed to the structure of society that we had coming out of the 19th century, uh, a sort of racialized white supremacist order where we had formally sanctioned Jim Crow after Plessy versus Ferguson. Uh, and the programs put in place, like the ones that helped the entrepreneur from uh, uh, Cincinnati, uh, they rub these activists the wrong way. They are rearticulating the 14th Amendment of the Constitution, which was put in place to cure anti-black racism, has now an offense <laughs> and a racialized attack on white people. And this is the politics of it. 
um, and whether entrepreneurs in the bottom part of the system and the ecosystem who are getting this help understand that, that's precisely what they're doing. So the why for the other side is they they want to say that we live in a world where all of the historic you know, injustices that now shape the way that black people and women and Latinos have access to capital and do business, that that doesn't matter anymore. That That's the why on their side, right? We're going to head to another quick break. We'll be back with more from you and our guests in just a moment. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Bluehost. Try Bluehost Cloud, the hosting plan made for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, fast load times, and 24-7 support, your sites can handle high traffic spikes. Visit bluehost.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Made in Cookware. Did you know that many popular dishes in Tom Colicchio's craft restaurant are made in Made in Cookware? Maiden supplies chefs with high-end cookware because Maiden makes exactly what demanding chefs look for. When you level up your cooking, remember what great dishes on menus worldwide have in common. They're Maiden Maiden. Save up to 25% this Memorial Day from the 18th until the 27th. Visit MaidenCookware.com. That's M-A-D-E-I-N Cookware.com. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Integrative Therapeutics. With vitamins and supplements previously available only through practitioners, including Cortisol Manager. Unlock your best self with clinician-curated supplements from Integrative Therapeutics, now on Amazon. Let's get back to the discussion. Now, activists are suing venture capital funds, professional fellowships, and corporate policies to promote diversity. Many of these cases are pending, though some have been settled out of court. At least one case has been decided on in favor of a white female plaintiff who sued a federal program that awards billions of dollars to minority businesses. Tom Gaziano is the president of the Center for Individual Rights. That's a legal group behind that lawsuit, and he joins us now from Falls Church, Virginia. Todd, welcome to the program. Thank you very much for having me. So your group sued the federal government's Small Business Administration regarding a provision of its 8A business development program. What part of this program did you target in your lawsuit? Well, the only the unconstitutional uh, racial preference. And um, we're very gratified that the, the federal judge um, struck it down on multiple grounds, um, finding that it had no legitimate government purpose, um, and because it was over-inclusive, um, uh, not time-bound, and a number of other factors. Explain the over-inclusive part of that decision. Well, the SBA bureaucracy took a lawful congressional statute, or one that we believe was lawful, and they just uh, created an automatic presumption that anyone from certain favored races and ethnicities uh, were socially disadvantaged. Uh, whereas Congress defined social disadvantage in a in a different way that would actually target those that were socially disadvantaged. So when you make that sort of presumption, you sweep in, you know, children of millionaires who are descendants of Spanish royalty, um, and you're not really targeting those who are disadvantaged. So such a um, automatic uh, in discovery. Um, the SBA admitted that no one had ever been denied who was given the, the presumption. So it was, a, it was a conclusive presumption that assumes that every single uh, individual of, of certain favored races 
um, are disadvantaged. Now, did 8A only target racial groups or did that include gender or other identities? Um, as it was um, enacted by Congress, it in- includes all sorts of social disadvantage and it doesn't, doesn't uh, define it narrowly. And even today, the program doesn't exclude others if the others who aren't in the favored races can go through a rather arduous four-step process uh, to establish their economic and social disadvantage. But the vast majority, somewhere north of 80% of the contractors, according to the Washington Post and the Congressional Research Service, are those who are automatically deemed to be socially disadvantaged because of their preferred race. According to the center-left think tank Third Way, the federal government paid small businesses more than $560 billion in fiscal year 2020. Of that spending, 9% went to minority-owned businesses and less than 5% went to women. Close to 20% of U.S. business owners are people of color or or just over 20% are women. So there are gaps in the way these contracts are distributed how should the federal government remedy these racial gaps specifically in public spending? Well, the, the Constitution forbids classifications based on on race, the sort of automatic treatment that the SBA was engaging in before the judge struck it down. But it's perfectly fine for Congress to say we want to help the truly disadvantaged. And if that, you know, helps more of certain races at different times in certain industries, uh, that's perfectly fine for uh, that result to to happen. Um, And so what the agency should do is what Congress really enacted, which is to focus on those who are truly disadvantaged uh, socially and economically. And and so how do you define disadvantage? Your client was able to take advantage of a program targeted at helping women. This is before suing over this program at helping racial minorities. But she also had access to family funds when she started her business. She was able to go to her father to get an investment for her or for her business that she wanted to start up. Someone would look at that picture and say, well, how is she disadvantaged? She had access to family wealth and resources while others don't. She would not qualify under the social and economic disadvantage if it was properly um, enacted by Congress, but no one is because the the Congress defined social or economic disadvantage as those which had more difficulty getting uh, capital than the average in their industry. But the SBA has never kept statistics on that, has never followed Congress's definition of economic disadvantage, they came up with some arbitrary limits. If you have $6.49 million from your your parents, you're economically uh, disadvantaged, um, possibly economically disadvantaged, and you could have an income of over $400,000 a year as long as your adjusted gross income was under $400,000. So the SBA's uh, made-up guidelines have nothing to do with the program that Congress enacted anyway. That's Todd Gaziano. He's president of the Center for Individual Rights. Todd, thanks for speaking with us. 
Thank you. We reached out to the Small Business Administration and they sent us a statement from SBA Administrator Isabella Casillas Guzman. She writes, quote, the SBA is proud of our work to promote equity and level the playing field in federal procurement to attract a diverse supplier base and ensure competition, innovation and performance. As we work with the Department of Justice to continue reviewing the district court's ruling and evaluating the next steps, the SBA and Biden-Harris administration remain committed to supporting this crucial program. Lauren, how was this case different than the Supreme Court decision um, barring race-based admissions in higher education? Well, um, in the education cases, the legal argument was that there is a benefit to, it's part of the educational experience. There are educational benefits to having um, a diverse student body. That was the basis that the Supreme Court had supported affirmative action in the past. Now, uh, the the cases that are targeting more business programs or uh, corporate DEI programs are they don't they don't have you know they 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 have not had the legal basis to make that argument that um, you know we're creating an educational community or a community that benefits from diversity even though there is plenty of research out there certainly in terms of the workplace and corporate structures and things like that that having a diverse workforce having many points of view many experiences represented uh, is good for your business, helps you serve your customers better, helps you engage your employees better. That's Wall Street Journal reporter Lauren Weber and Alvin Tillery of the Center for the Study of Diversity and Democracy at Northwestern University. Thanks to you both. Today's producer was June Leffler. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. Let's talk again tomorrow. This is 1A. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Lisa. Good sleep should come naturally. And with the new Natural Hybrid mattress, it can. A collaboration between Lisa and West Elm, the Natural Hybrid is expertly crafted from natural latex, natural wool, and certified safe foams to elevate your sleep sanctuary and support a greener tomorrow. Plus, every purchase helps fuel Lisa's work with shelters and those in need. Visit lisa.com to learn more. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Capella University. With Capella's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Humans are kind of overrated. Over on Shortwave, a science podcast, we're only kind of kidding. We're bringing you the wondrous world of animal science to your daily life. From queer animal love stories to songbird memories, we're showing you how critter knowledge informs human science. Listen now to Shortwave, a podcast from NPR.